Hi, my name's Noreen Jamil, and this is... Emily Kate Stevens. Both of us have been diagnosed with long COVID. And we've created this podcast dedicated to the condition. Welcome to the Long COVID Sessions. Hi, Noreen. Happy New Year. I know we're a little bit late in saying that to people, but how was your week? How were your weeks? My weeks, they've become a blur of just not feeling quite right, I think. Different things. I I mentioned last time that we all had viruses in the house, and so I'm still feeling the after effects in terms of my long COVID. So you got over the virus and then got your long COVID symptoms, or it all just blends into one? No, no, it definitely doesn't. So I get the virus. This is the pattern that I've noticed. I get the virus. I have a really good month. I'll be fine. At week four, five, that's when my long COVID symptoms kick in. Every time. Every time. Like clockwork now. And that's exactly what happened after I first developed this post-viral illness. I got COVID. I was fine for about six weeks. And then I started to get the tachycardia in there. I... I've never felt as ill as I have done in the last three months, four months. Yeah, you've had a pretty rough four or five months, haven't you? Yeah, so this leads me down the road of thinking we just get a little bit worse each time. Do you think? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think my heart can't keep doing this long term. Like the new symptom I had this time, which I think could be because of the meds, was that I would get pounding in my chest in my heart that it would hurt my heart would hurt and before when I had tachycardia I never felt the pounding and it didn't yeah. hurt a symptom that you mentioned the last time we recorded this inflammation that you have down your right side or pain under your right arm how is that it's still there the thing is now I've kind of learned to live with it rather than just be frightened with it I went to see a doctor I had some scans they can't see anything the blood work looks good, so they've dismissed it. But there's definitely something going on. I, I'm taking myself off to have an MRI because I worry that it, you know it could be something that they're just not seeing. But it's mostly for my own peace of mind. Yeah. But yeah, no, my arm still aches all of my right side, from my right ear all the way down my neck into my axilla and down my right arm and then down the right side of my body. But it's definitely some kind of inflammatory response. Yeah. There was a couple of weeks where my heart was so out of control I couldn't do anything. But it seems to have calmed down a bit. But the right-sided inflammation is making me anxious. Let's let's talk about you. How have you been? So I have been pretty rough for the past three weeks. I was doing really, really well. Maybe it's just only one of us is able to be well at any one time. Like we (laughs) share this thing because about the time that you started crashing in September, I started feeling great. I started feeling not normal, but compared to how I had felt, I felt good. I didn't have to worry every single day about whether I was going to get out of bed anymore. And I think you spoke about this in September, having had such a period of wellness. I think one of the hardest things to get your head around is when you crash like this, that idea that you thought you were okay or that you had that period of wellness. Now, I know we should go, yeah, well, I'm really grateful that I had that period of wellness. But I also thought that I was 
incrementally improving. So to now crash to this level again is is hard. I'm having migraines. I've got headaches that I feel like my brain is going to explode. And yesterday I lost half of my vision with a, a migraine. And it's just debilitating. It means you can't do normal stuff. I can drive my kids to and from school when I've got a splitting headache. I can't do it if I can't see. It really changes your ability to do anything. And I've spent half of the past three weeks in in bed. I'm not great, to be honest with you. Really not great. And all of the things come back that I had forgotten about. All of those lovely little gifts, the tinnitus and the pulsatile tinnitus. And you have inflammation down your right side. I get weird inflammation down my left side. I've had these various injuries down my left side. And whenever I go into a crash, I can feel the pain of these old injuries. I think it's just inflammation through my body. So I can feel my hamstring. I can feel my knee. I can feel where I broke my toes when I first had COVID. I can feel my underarm. That's all down my left side. Yeah. And that's the left side that my head feels like it's going to burst. Maybe we just need to combine our bodies. Your <laughs> left side and my right side. It might look yeah. a bit odd, but... Yeah, I think it would be beautiful. <laughs> so, yeah, not very joyful news from me. I am feeling rough, really rough. This goes back to my thing where I'm always Miss Negative and you're always Miss Positive, where... I feel like we've been damaged and every time we suffer an injury, we're less robust in our ability to respond and recover. Hence my being ill for so long this time. Yeah, I'm still mispositive. I know you are. I know you are. But I'm just more realistic. I still think I didn't catch the virus that my son brought home this last week. And mm. so although it, my body is obviously fighting something and struggling with something, I still think... I'm in better shape than I was a year ago. And also, that's one thing I wanted to say. If I look back to where I was between Christmas and New Year last year, I was unable to leave the house and I had the tremors so badly that I had to Mm. let the whole family go away without me. And I literally couldn't get up. So if I compare now to how I was a year ago, I am still, even with these crippling migraines, I'm still doing better. So you see, I'll still put a positive spin on it. That is a positive spin on it. (laughs) Part of it, I fear, is the fact that, like me dealing with this inflammation numbness in my hand, we just kind of get on with it. I know. I was saying to you the other day, wasn't I? In normal life, you would not be getting up and getting on. We get all this weird stuff. Nobody knows what it is. But, you know, we've just got to get on with it. Yeah. I know a lot of people say no one's doing anything on long COVID. From what we see, there is a lot of information coming out. There's a lot of studies being done. It's almost confusing the variety of things that people are trialing and testing for the disease. Because there are so many things that people say, oh, this might work. And you think, but how can that work if this thing is supposed to be working? They don't work in a similar way. They're not targeting a similar pathway. It can be explained if we believe in the idea that we are all suffering from different phenotypes of long COVID. As our guest, Ziad Al-Ali, who is Chief of Research and Development at the Veterans Association, St. Louis Healthcare Systems. 
and he's a clinical epidemiologist at Washington University in St. Louis. He has been prolific, I would say. Not only in his own field, as you'll get from this interview, he's on top of all the research. Mm. He knows what everyone's doing and is aware of all the different theories as well as his own. You've been extremely vocal since 2020 about the possible long-term effects of, of COVID. Why don't we just start with your overview of what long COVID is? So we'd like to define long COVID as sort of the umbrella term that encompasses all the post-acute and chronic manifestations of SARS-CoV-2 infection. And I know in the public imagination, long COVID is the, the, a lot of people think about it as, you know, this post-exertional malaise or fatigue and brain fog. There's really much, much more than, than that to it. Uh, we'd like to define it as, and I admit it's, a, it's an umbrella term, but really brings under that umbrella term all the post-acute, meaning that immediately after the acute phase, after the first 30 days, and the chronic or long-term consequences of SARS-CoV-2 infection. And that's really actually quite a, quite, quite a lot. I mean, through over the past two and a half years, now, now very close to three years, we've learned a lot about what an infection with SARS-CoV-2 can lead to. And so we, we think that that's really the term that would be, or that sort of definition would be most helpful in helping us understand all the consequences of the viral infection. Are you wanting to separate it out or are you wanting it to bring it all together? The immediate post-acute, do you want to, to separate from the chronic? You asked me how, how I'd like to define long COVID. Now, under that umbrella term, you know, there are going to be different constellation of symptomatology that could be subclassified into, say, potentially long COVID type A, long COVID type B, long COVID type C. And some of those could be manifestations that could be post-acute and resolved with time. And some will be chronic or long-term manifestations that may, in, in some cases, remain with people for a long, longer period of time. I think we need to really leave no stone unturned and make no assumptions now that we know it all. You know, we now know that viruses, including SARS-CoV-2, can lead to long-term manifestation. We need to sort of have a term for that. I feel like that the term long COVID is really the best way to represent this, honoring the patient community and, and the people who really came up with the, with the term long COVID. We also need to understand that while we've made a lot of progress over the past several years, over the past three years, there's st still a lot that we need to learn. And subsequently, you know, I think we can sort of subclassify all of the things that I described under this broad umbrella term into clusters of symptomatology that then we can sort of call potentially long COVID type A or B or C or D. Okay. When you say um, separated out by symptomatology, do you think it's more appropriate to classify them as cardio versus lung problems versus blood clotting? Or do you think we're more likely to end up with classification based on potential drivers, potential mechanisms? We have to keep our options open at this point. Potentially, one way of classifying disease would be the mechanistic pathway. Mm. If we uncover, let's say, three or four different mechanisms, then we can say, okay, there are three or different types of lung COVID that are driven by mechanism A and B and C and D. And then the reason that's really important because different mechanisms might respond differently to different treatment strategies. So classifying that way could also help allocate treatment, you know, right? Say mechanism A will respond to treatment A, mechanism B will respond to treatment B. So that's one way of thinking about it. 
You know, the other way to think about it is that if you're classifying based on symptomatology and disease manifestations, and the two ways are not necessarily mutually exclusive. I think we have to be humble and, and admit that we've made a lot of progress, but, you know, there is still a lot to know. You know, I liken sort of almost like long COVID story now to the early days of cancer when like, you know, more than a hundred years ago, people used to call everything like a neoplasm or cancer or an outgrowth or a tumor, right? But now we know a hundred years later, there are like more than 800 types of different cancers and, and they respond to differently to treatment. They have different prognosis, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And although we're making a whole lot more progress and much, much, much faster in this new era yeah. now with, with long COVID, but I, I, I definitely think that there is a lot that we need to know here. You are definitely quite worried about this. Last year, you said that the WHO was letting down the long COVID community by not sounding the alarm enough. How worried are you for this community that's growing? I think long COVID is a serious problem, but people are not really able to see it for what it is. I think people focus and policymakers focus a lot on number of cases, death and hospitalization. And I liken that to the tip of the iceberg. They're seeing what's visible immediately in front of them. It's almost like this narrow vision where like, that's the immediate effect of the virus. We're going to focus on that. And admittedly, that's actually easier to count, right? What they're not seeing is really the post-acute and long-term manifestations, the after effects of, of a SARS-CoV-2 infection. And I think that's really profound because even if you go by the, by the lowest estimates out there, single-digit percentages of, of people with SARS-CoV-2 infection having long COVID, even if you go by that, you know, there are millions in the US, millions in the UK, many, 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 many millions around the world. When you sort of really evaluate with what long COVID is, we, we just talked about it. You know, some manifestations might actually persist with people for a long, long, long time. And those can affect people's ability for education attainment. It may impair their ability to learn, you know, go to school, achieve and get degrees, et cetera, et cetera, work, personal relationships. It really has really significant and broad ramifications. And I think as a society, we have not really gotten our head wrapped around this or sort of a totally understood what's really happening, you know, the, the magnitude of, of, of all of this. And interestingly, the, the chronic sufferers, Noreen's had it for two years, I've had it for two and a half years. The chronic sufferers are almost going to be the ones that are the hardest to count. As we are starting to see the increase of heart attacks, strokes, these things as a post-COVID consequence. Do you think perhaps that could wake governments or the World Health Organization up to the middle term implications of it? I definitely think they need to pay attention to this. I mean, that's really very, very important. Whether this really will wake them up or not, I don't really know. We're doing our best to communicate the message. We're doing our best to do the research, to put the evidence out there, to be very, very vocal about it and up at pieces and everywhere and, and to try to make sure that, that, the, that the message gets across. And I, and I do know that they read our work because I, I, I get messages or sometimes through emails and, and conversations with key people in, in different countries, very high up in government, different countries. And, and they, I know they read the work. The message is, 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 is public and it's there. The question is whether really we're going to really take it seriously enough to really do something about it. That's really a totally different policy question. You've done a paper on the long-term cardiovascular sequelae of long COVID. There are more and more reports now of people having, like Emily just said, having strokes, having heart attacks, seemingly fine after their initial, I mean, we call it acute, but it could have been a mild COVID infection. More and more evidence that it's an endothelial disease and causing problems within the blood system. What was your research? What did you find most striking about that part of your work? We did this actually last summer, but it was published, I think, in, in, um, about a year ago. Mm -hmm. 
So we've assembled a core of about 150,000 people at the time who had SARS-CoV-2 infection and compared them to two control groups who did not have SARS-CoV-2 infection. One, contemporary controls, people lived during the same time period, exposed to the same broader conditions of the pandemic, you know, lockdowns, et cetera, et cetera, but did not have SARS-CoV-2 infection. And a historical control group from a, an era that predated the pandemic. What we found is really striking that, that people with SARS-CoV-2 infection have a higher risk of, of developing all sorts of cardiovascular complications, including you know, heart attacks, sudden death, cardiac arrest, ventricular arrhythmias, atrial fibrillation, palpitation. It was really eye-opening because it wasn't really one thing. It was, it was really a broad array of cardiovascular manifestations. And that's concordant, as you suggested, with the idea that SARS-CoV-2 is not only a respiratory disease, it's really a systemic disease. It's affect endothelial lining of the blood vessels and, and can, you know, lead to blood clots everywhere, including in the heart and, and, and other organs. And that can, can explain some of those manifestations that we described in that report. And then, and unfortunately, the, the, the findings, which now like more than a year ago, we reported on that and, and you know, been, been reported in multiple other journals and they're borne out with, with the experiences of people. People come to us and say, oh, my son had a stroke or my son had a heart attack or my, my, my niece or suddenly passed away, had a cardiac arrest or had sudden death. So so it, it's really disheartening to get all that flood of emails from people, you know, saying that that's my experience too. You're saying that in your report, but that's my experience too. And this has been since, since reproduced in multiple other scientific uh, papers as well. Yeah, it's unfortunate corroboration. It would have been nice for you to have been proven wrong on, on, on some of this, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, that definitely would be better news. We we had another another paper on on diabetes, and and the other the other day I was sort of reviewing a paper that pretty much like re reported the same thing. I, I told the editor, I, I I wish this is not the case. I wish they were they were able to say like we did the same work that that we did, and we found a different conclusion that you're wrong. It doesn't increase the risk of diabetes, but the fact is that it's actually the evidence is very very consistent throughout the past couple of years. One thing that we should actually mention about your studies or the studies that I've looked at is a lot of the time, Noreen and I speak to people who have done studies based on 50 people, 90 people. The data that you're analysing, the number of people that you're looking at for, for a lot of these studies is absolutely vast. And therefore, it's less one dot. It is collecting sometimes 50,000 150,000, yeah. It, it, it's huge. Could you just tell us a little about your demographics for some of them? The beauty of, of having an electronic health record system sort of in the data age, right? The pandemic now happened as opposed to sort of like the Spanish flu or from, from more than a century ago. This pandemic happened in the 21st century in the data age where we have a lots and lots of data. I'd like to think that we're very good at sort of really harnessing that power of data to generate new insights, right? And we've been doing that before the pandemic with other diseases. When the pandemic hit, we, we decided to, to pivot to COVID, primarily identifying major research questions that the people care about and addressing them rigorously. And that led us initially to study COVID versus flu. And then subsequently, we started thinking about long COVID with the patient community and doing a lot of research on long COVID. I'd like to think that this is really an exemplar of how you can you know, use data you know, from electronic health record systems and marry them with advanced methodologies to really inform public health policy. In terms of demographics, our, our data 
we use primarily data from the Department of Veterans Affairs in the U.S. And that's by definition. Most of the people here are, are older than the general population. Majority are, are white, so it doesn't reflect the current diversity of, of people in, in the U.S. And it's tilted heavily toward uh, males, so it's 90% males. But, but because it's big, sometimes we have more females in our cohort than all of the other studies combined. I like to tell this story because it sort of illustrates the point and, and speaks to, to the suggestion that you, you made about the, that the numbers really matter. The other day I was reading a, a, a journal article and it says that the studies by Al-Ali et al, so they had 90% male. So they had only 10% female. And then we, we don't really think that the results really hold in females. So we went on and did the study of 200 people <laughs> that are 50% male and 50% female, and then sort of generated these results. And I don't think they were really paying attention to their numbers when you have 200 people and the ratio is 50-50 as it should be, right? But you're left with only 100 women or 100 female in the cohort. What that really means yeah. is that it's really, it's really very, very small. And our cohorts, although it's 10% females, those are generally in, in, in more than half a million in most of our studies. Yeah, which is comparatively huge. Mm-hmm. So shall we talk about your latest study, which is the one that really caught my eye about repeat infections and the subsequent risk for people post getting COVID once, twice, thrice, four times? So we, we did this because we started seeing people coming back to the clinic and was sort of air invincibility about them. They would say like, hey, doc, I've been vaccinated before and I had COVID before. So they had what we call medically hybrid immunity, meaning vaccine-derived immunity and immunity from natural infection. And some in the press and the media started referring to these patients as super immune, have like super immunity because you have hybrid immunity from both sources, from the vaccine and from the infection. So, and, and then they had this air of invincibility about them. Like, I don't really need to wear a mask. I don't need to do this. I can do whatever I want. And if I get infected again or get reinfected, it, it's inconsequential. It doesn't really matter. So we, we asked the question, does it really matter? Like, does, if you get reinfected again, does it have consequences? So the best way to do that is to compare getting reinfected versus not getting reinfected, right? Like, sort of a, you know, versus a, a, another person who has only one infection and does not get reinfected again. And, and the results are really striking. And I think very, very, very important have been misinterpreted some in the press, but I think very, very important in the sense that what the data shows very, very, very clearly that if you get reinfected, there is an increased risk after that infection of problems in the acute phase, including hospitalization, death, and multiple different manifestations in multiple different organ systems, and in the post-acute phase. So, so really in our brain, it's very, very, very clear that, that getting reinfected contributes additional risk. Let's say if your risk is X, certainly with reinfection, the risk is going to be more than X. So that definitely you're buying yourself additional risks by, by that exposure or getting reinfected. And, and I think that's really an important point because in a lot of the public consciousness, if you've had it once, you're done with it, especially if you, you, know, if you survived unscathed after the first infection, a lot of people feel like, okay, well, I had it before, nothing really happened to me, or let's say for a day or two, or maybe I was asymptomatic or mildly ill and then got better. So I'm not gonna mask. And I think that the research shows that, that if you've dodged the bullet the first time, is does not necessarily mean that you're going to continue to dodge the bullet every time you get infected. If you managed to get COVID the first time and survived it and did not get long COVID, does not mean you're going to dodge that bullet the second time and also avoid long COVID. 
to kind of like you're trying your luck again. So why is that? Because we are used to, as a society, growing up, getting a cold, getting a cold again, and we build up some immunity to some disease. What is the difference? Clearly, people don't think that there is much difference between influenza or the cold and SARS-CoV-2. What is different about this disease that makes it almost like you are being infected for the first time every time you get COVID? Well, what's different about it is the novelty. It's really new on Earth. SARS-CoV-2 did not exist on Earth. Coronavi- other coronaviruses, like the common cold and other, like they've been on Earth for probably you know, hundreds of years, right? So what's really different about it is its, it's newness. It's like you're, when, when people encountered SARS-CoV-2 in March of 2020, that was the very first few months, like humanity encountered this beast, this new virus. So what, what's really very different about it is, is, is its novelty. And, and I definitely feel that one of the things that this pandemic taught us is that viruses can lead to long-term manifestations. And I don't know, and I tried to research this, but, but maybe somebody can, co- can correct me. I don't know that we have ever really studied if somebody had, let's say, in the course of 20 or 30 years, had 10 colds versus another person had only two, will their risk of heart attacks at 50 be different? And I don't know if we ever studied that because we'd be a little cold as like, oh, yeah, you're sick for a day or two and it doesn't really matter. And you bounce back. But I don't know that anybody on Earth in this civilization has really actually studied this because we've always assumed. And I think now we know wrongly and over the past century or so, we've assumed that viruses produce acute manifestations. That's it. Actually, all our systems, we talk about our public health surveillance systems here, they're, they only capture the acute phase out of this idea, you know, because they're based and rooted in this idea that viruses produce acute manifestations and nothing after that. So if you ask them what happens on day 31, nobody knows because nobody captures that. That's really interesting. Yeah. Because people don't really think that viruses can produce long-term manifestations. And so I tell people that that SARS-CoV-2 is unique and it's not. It's unique because it's novel and it's not because now we're discovering that viruses can produce long-term manifestations. But but SARS-CoV-2 is not only unique. There is long flu. There's long Ebola. There's obviously HIV AIDS. There's long polio. We, though, as a society, decided to ignore all of this for the past hundred years and then got hit with this pandemic, and now we have to rediscover everything because we, we didn't do our job over the past century studying the post-viral condition. People are looking at some of these with fresh eyes, people like yourselves, EBV, HPV, mm-hmm. that they can cause. Obviously, HPV can cause cancer down the road. Mm-hmm. And we weren't thinking like that before. Mm-hmm. So I, th- I think it's, I mean, in a way, it's a good thing, <laughs> but a bad thing. Yeah, the whole pandemic is a bad thing, but a crisis is a terrible opportunity to waste, right? I mean, this is a major crisis, seismic event in our lifetime. And I think we need to try to understand it and learn from it as much as possible. Because one thing is sure is that pandemics are going to happen again and again and again. That's one thing. I don't know if it's going to happen in my lifetime. I don't know if it's going to happen in 10 years or 20 years or 30 years, but pandemics will happen. And the hope is that we learn as much as possible now. So our kids or grandkids or whoever is going to deal with the next pandemic, they're better prepared to deal with it and, and better you know, cognizant from the get-go, from the very beginning, that viruses can produce long-term manifestations. So, so yes, you know, SARS-CoV-2 is unique and it's not. It's not because a lot of other viruses also produce long-term manifestations. You talk about the rhinovirus or the flu. None of us would ever necessarily have registered that we had the rhinovirus twice last year or however many times, and none Mm -hmm. of us have been tested for it. So this is Mm -hmm. an opportunity because of the fact that we've had this testing and this proof that this virus has been contracted and therefore the 
long-term effects could be directly related to that virus. This is the first time we're really seeing that. Well, this is a very important observation. That's absolutely true. That's absolutely true. Like we don't we don't test for common cold. So it's very hard to sort of uh, tally up its long-term manifestation or long-term effects. And that's really a big blind spot and, and it needs to be done. We, we definitely need to take these things seriously to learn as much as possible about broadly the post-viral condition. Yeah. What was really worrying to me, what really stood out quite prominently when I read the VA study that you did recently about a reinfection is the idea that we're exposing our kids without much mitigation now in the US and the UK. We're not protecting them at all from reinfection. And the long-term consequences for that are fairly frightening if you just look at the adult population. The effects on the brain, the effects on, on the cardiovascular system. At some point, like you say, when will governments wake up? But in the meantime, as parents, we're just kind of looking at our kids and sending them out without any protection. It's quite frightening. Have you looked at children at all? Or I know that you're working with the Veterans Association. It's mostly older people. But you could extrapolate out, I guess, right? We've learned from other studies that, that long COVID can also happen in kids, that brain fog can happen in kids, that brain fog some, in some kids can be you know, so profound that it actually impairs their ability to learn and function well in schools and have friends and, and et cetera, et cetera. So it's undeniably happening in kids. It's very, very important because that's really the future. I mean, kids are, are the people who are going to be adults in the future and, and really the, the future of our nation, our civilization. And and I think to see that we're not doing enough to really reduce that risk. You know, we can never really eliminate the risk. The genie is out of the box. We, we cannot really eliminate the risk. But, but uh, to reduce the risk as much as possible to kids is, is really, I, I feel, a major policy problem. What would be your strategy for that? The immediate potential mitigator would be masking and mm. interventions like that. I mean, the, the, as a long term, and I think this is really what we're not taking very seriously, is vaccines that would block transmission. So instead of wearing a mask all your life, try to protect yourself from getting that virus. If you have a vaccine that actually blocks transmission, intranasal vaccine that boosts mucosal immunity. So the virus is airborne. Thankfully, now people are are on the same page. More than three years later, three years later, people, people, people are on the same page. The virus is airborne. The way we get the virus is that we get it primarily via airborne means. Right. So it, it, it attacks with our airways. Our current vaccine technology is very, very wonderful, but really wholly inadequate to boost mucosal immunity and block transmission. What current vaccines do, they reduce the risk of severe disease. They reduce the risk of people getting hospitalized and dying. They're miraculous. Current vaccines are amazing, but they don't do very well to block transmission. What we need is a vaccine strategy 2.0. Kind of like we've done the 1.0 already, okay? And it's good and it's wonderful, but you don't want to keep driving a car that's like 500 years old, right? You want like vaccine strategy 2.0 and primarily vaccine strategy that block transmission. Number two is really also outpacing the virus evolution. It's really more like a pan-coronavirus vaccine technology, meaning that now we keep sort of chasing our tail, you know, being reactive. It's like, oh, there is B4, there is B5. Oh, let's develop a vaccine for B4 and B5. You know, <laughs> right now we have the bivalent booster here. We have now BQ111. Or, and yeah, and soon enough, we'll have something else. So we need a vaccine technology that covers a broad array of potential variants of SARS-CoV-2 and also block transmission. I mean, that's really very, very important. This is what really 
technology is there. It just needs to be further developed and, and tested. And, and governments and health systems should be invested in this. You know, otherwise, we'll be, we'll be stuck with this debate. Oh, do, you know, like, should we wear a mask? And, and that's really not sustainable in the long run. It's not going to be sustainable 10 years from now. We need to evolve our vaccine technology to be able to block transmission. So you don't have to rely on masking necessarily to reduce your, your risk of getting it and, and transmitting it to others. And just to say, you just said we do have the technology. It does exist. Oh, yes, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. A lot of people are doing research on this. Aikiko Iwasaki, other people. Eric Topal and, and, and Aikiko Iwasaki mm. had a wonderful, wonderful piece, I think, in science calling for Operation War Speed 2.0, right? So what does that really mean? That exactly means this. It means, you know, mucosal vaccines to reduce the risk of transmission, to block that virus, right? Again, current vaccines are wonderful. I'm not, I'm not an anti-vaxxer here. No. We agree. We need to understand what they do and what they don't do. What they do, they prevent you from getting into the hospital. They prevent you from dying. They reduce the risk of dying and hospitalization very, very, very well. What they don't do very well is blocking transmission. And that's what we really need. And then if we get to the stage where kids can have these vaccines, you know, then, then we, you can feel you know, much, much, much safer with kids interacting with other kids and going to school without masks and all of that. This is overdue already. So people need... A, Governments need to, to, to invest in this as soon as possible. There was a movement to have the vaccine administered nasally, but I think it was the money was withdrawn or the funding the funding wasn't there for it in the end. There is a, certainly a movement. I mean, that's really exactly what we're talking about, the potentially intranasal vaccine to boost mucosal immunity. I do admit there are challenges in funding, and I think that's really what needs to be resolved. Is going to be a viable and credible exit strategy from this pandemic. Otherwise, we're going to keep chasing our tail. And again, not only that, the other facets of vaccine development 2.0 needs to cover a pan-coronavirus, cover a broad array, or be variant-proof. And number three, I would say, also needs to be more durable because what, what people are not going to do, they're not going to do vaccine every six months, right? And maybe vaccine once a year with the current vaccine technology may not be sufficient. So we need vaccines that are more durable, that last a longer period of time, that confers greater immunity that does not wane as, as fast as the waning of immunity that we see with current vaccine technology. Okay. Could we talk about another of your studies, which I think it might be in preprint at the moment, but it's a very recent one, I believe. And that is you looking at the effect of Paxlovid in acute and the impact on long COVID. Just whilst we're talking about strategies this doesn't doesn't prevent acute COVID, but can you tell us about your findings of using an antiviral in the acute and its impact on long COVID? Because it's something we've discussed with a few people. So we were very, very interested in the idea that do people who take Paxlovid in the acute phase, you know, so you got, they got infected today and then go to the doctor and get Paxlovid within five days of, of the infection, do those people have less risk of developing long COVID than people who go untreated? And the answer in our study is a definite yes. So people who are treated early on with the antiviral Paxlovid, within five days of symptom onset, go on to have a less risk of long COVID manifestations. And, and we think that really suggests that, that treatment with antiviral early on, abrogating that viral replication or reducing or blocking that viral replication early on, may bode well, may actually have a salutary effect or beneficial effect on the development of long COVID later on. So that's really sort of in a, in a nutshell, the paper. What we didn't do, what the paper does not do, is really test the idea 
of whether you've, if you already had long COVID, let's say you've had long COVID for a year or two, whether taking Paxlovid after the fact really ameliorates outcome. Our paper does not do that. It does not test that hypothesis. That hypothesis should be tested. Our paper does not do that. Our paper was like, if you early on, if you get infected today, does taking Paxlovid is, is better than not taking Paxlovid for the risk of long COVID? And the answer is, is yes. For the risk of long COVID. But do you have any idea what the implications of taking Paxlovid in the acute phase have on your body's ability to deal with a repeat infection? Does it impair your immune system to deal with subsequent infections? We didn't approach it from that angle. So I was just curious as to your thoughts on that. Because I know that you are someone, I believe, who is, I know that you're not anti-vax, but you are quite aware of over-medication or you have worked in, in trying to reduce prescription dependence? Is that Oh, absolutely, 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 absolutely. So I was just wondering if we give that antiviral such a Pax Lovett in the acute phase to everyone, if everyone had it, would it then implicate our subsequent ability to deal with the virus? I don't think so, but also it's very important to, to caveat the interpretation of our study with the following, that we studied Paxlovid only in people who would qualify to use it under the US FDA emergency use authorization. Currently. What, does that, what does that really mean? Currently, what does that really mean? You have to be at least 60 years of age or have a medical condition that would put you at risk of progression to severe COVID-19 illness, meaning heart disease, diabetes, lung disease, kidney disease. So you have to either be 60 years of age or have one of these conditions to qualify for Paxlovid currently in the U.S. Okay. So our population in, in which we studied the effect of Paxlovid was exactly that. So we didn't study in a 20-year-old guy or gal who is healthy and has no other medical problems and in SARS-CoV-2 infection got Paxlovid. That was not our population. So very, very important to... Yeah, I think that is very important. Yeah. Would that include then people who've got long COVID because they've got cardiovascular issues, they've got lung issues, they've got maybe early onset diabetes because they've had COVID, would they then be eligible to have Paxlovid and be part of this trial? Oh, yes, yes. So currently in the US, you know, the FDA authorizes, based on an emergency use authorization, the use of Paxlovid in people who are either 60 years of age or more, or have one of those medical conditions, regardless of whether this was really happening as a result of COVID or something else. And one other thing in our study, we studied people who had primary infection, and Paxlovid works in primary infection. And we also studied people who had the secondary reinfection, you know, and, and the Paxlovid also works in that subset as well. You know, so it, it, it certainly does work in, in reinfection. Again, and here the outcome reducing the risk of long COVID. So we feel that this is really one of the ways to, to try to prevent the development of long COVID. People who qualify for Paxlovid should be using it or should be discussing that with their doctor, with their provider, to consider using it as a mean of not only reducing the burden of acute disease or progression of severe disease in the acute phase, but also reducing their risk of long COVID. I think that's a, a no-brainer, but given the amount of physicians in the US that still doubt long COVID, it's uh, questionable whether you will get that sympathetic ear. If you say, I want to take this because of the risk of long COVID, I know from personal experience that my physician in the U.S. dismisses long COVID quite, quite easily. That, that's really unfortunate. It bothers me very, very deeply that 
you know, gaslighting is happening and it bothers me more deeply that, that gaslighting is happening sometimes by medical professionals. And that's really speaks to the larger failure of our systems, educating the community of physicians and providers about long COVID. Soon enough, we'll be at the three-year mark. This isn't, you know, we've been, we've been talking about long COVID for now more than two and a half years and speaks to the larger failure of the system in educating the providers that long COVID exists, it's real and needs to be recognized and treated. And it's really sad. It's really sad to hear it. And I hear this a lot, you know, the other day I was on a radio show and all the callers, now I think like, all of them, 100% of them, you know, said the same thing. Oh, I go to my doctor and he tells me it's all in my head. Go exercise, I'll go away. You know, he doesn't believe me. All of them, all of them. Not a single caller on that radio show uh, ha- had a positive story about their providers acknowledging the fact that they actually have long COVID and admitting that, okay, we don't really know a whole lot about it, but I know your symptoms are real. There are a lot of people like you. You're not alone. Let's work together on figuring things out to help you get better. It's really a sad story that this is really what, what's happening. Where are we going wrong? Because there are voices like you who are really putting a lot of information out there. Is it the government that's, that need to take more of a role in educating your health care professionals? Or, or how do we deal with that? I think it's going to require a multi-pronged approach. I think definitely there is need to be a more robust and more vigorous public communications campaign about long COVID. So even the public, and actually a lot of people in the public still don't know about long COVID. Like, oh, I've never yeah. heard of it before. The other day, somebody at the supermarket, at the grocery store asked, what do I do? It's like, oh, I do long COVID. Oh, I've never heard about it. Like, never heard about it. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, it needs to be a multi-pronged strategy. Like, there needs to be a strong public communications campaign. There need to be really in training programs, you know, throughout the country, throughout the world, in, in medical schools and residency and fellowship to train the young generation of doctors that, that about the post-viral condition or infection-associated chronic illnesses, including long COVID. Professional societies need to step up to the plate. It bothered me very deeply. What I do, I go to their website of their meetings the American Diabetes Association, the American Heart Association, and say, okay, well, you guys are convening 50,000 heart doctors under under this American Heart Association meeting. Let me look at at your meeting and see how much you're talking about long COVID, either very, very minimal or zero. So that's that's the abject failure. This is where this comes from. You know, so it it cannot be only the government. It has to be a multi-pronged approach. Professional societies, American Heart Association, or the equivalent association in the UK and and. In Australia yeah. and New Zealand and in Europe, the WHO, the, the government, medical school curricula, uh, training programs for physicians. So this has to be a multi-pronged. We need to sort of really wake up to the reality that viruses, not only SARS-CoV-2, produce long-term manifestations. This needs to be in medical school curricula and needs to be everywhere. And, and I think close to three years into the pandemic, I, I think we've made some progress, but not nearly enough. And there is a whole lot more that needs to be done. Yeah. Emily and I meet people in our lives who definitely have symptoms of long COVID. A friend of mine will say, oh, my heart was racing the other day. I must be really unfair after a COVID infection. But they don't go and seek treatment because they haven't heard about long COVID. And then we hear so many stories now of this kind of, they call it middle COVID, where people are suddenly becoming severely ill, suffering a stroke, suffering a heart attack. And I wonder if they'd actually gone treatment, if they would have prevented it or at least not have had such a severe outcome. 
Well, absolutely. So the advice to people out there, if you've had COVID-19 and you, you feel that after you know several weeks of the initial infection, your energy is not back, you're feeling fatigued, you're weak, you're tired, you have memory problems, definitely seek help earlier than later. A, no, yeah, you're not alone. You know, there is a lot of a huge community of long COVID patients. You're not alone. Know that you're not alone. If you're feeling tired and exhausted and, and you know, profoundly fatigued, you're not alone. This is real. It's not in your head. You're not alone. Definitely, definitely seek help earlier than later. And, and I really hope that, that the, the physicians that, that people go to really, really take this serious. There are post-COVID clinics throughout the nation and also in, in the UK. I think that the major problem, the other problem we talk about, like we're not educating physicians, the other major problem is access is severely constrained. Yeah. You know, people here, some, in some cases, have to wait for six months or eight months to get an appointment in a post-COVID clinic. Yeah, I waited over two years. Th th this need, also needs to be addressed. It's very, 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 very important. With regards to your study on, on reinfection, when you talk about the cumulative risks and burdens of the repeated infections, did you see any pattern of predisposition or anything in our genetic makeup or, or anything that was there in us already in the people who get long COVID that would single them out as getting long COVID? Or do you believe that just everyone could end up with long COVID? after repeat and repeat and repeat infections? I definitely think that there, the idea that, that some people may be at more risk than others due to the, the genetic predisposition is a is a is an interesting hypothesis and needs to be tested. I don't know that we have the answers to that. I don't know that we have a, a gene or two or you know multiple SNPs or genetic variation that predispose some people to develop long COVID and protect some people from developing long COVID. I think that needs to be investigated much more deeply to help us understand this. The, the hypothesis is certainly interesting and I think it, need, it certainly needs to be tested. But there was a, no suggestion in the people that you looked at. It could be anyone. It could be anyone. And in, in our studies, and again, we didn't look at genetic determinants, so that's really a different story. So in the, in the parameters that we've looked at, we, we, we saw that, that across age groups, it didn't matter if people were young or old, we saw long COVID in young people, we saw long COVID in old people. We saw, for God's sake, we saw long COVID in people who are 90 years old. Okay, it can happen across the lifespan. So we know kids have it. We know older adults have it. The story here is that from our studies, we see, we see that it doesn't matter if you're young or, or old, if you're a female or a male, males get it. People say, oh, it's like only a female. Like, no, we have a lot of males who have long COVID. And white people, black people, Asian individuals across the board. It, that doesn't mean in the future we won't be able to sort of delve deeper into this and understand maybe there are genetic determinants that maybe predispose some people more to long COVID than others. I think that remains to be tested. Does the vaccine reduce your risk, do you think? You've done a study on that as well, haven't you? Long COVID and breakthrough. Emily had the wild type, the original Wuhan virus. I had Omicron, both before vaccines. And we're still fairly disabled by our long COVID. Sorry to hear that. So vaccines reduce, but do not eliminate the risk of long COVID. So certainly, certainly vaccines are, are again, miraculous at reducing the risk of, of acute disease or a progression to severe disease in acute phase, and they do some to reduce the risk of long COVID. We, we, we think that the risk reduction is small, it's not really huge, but, but it's definitely there. You know, vaccines are doing something. They definitely reduce the risk of, of, of long COVID, but do not eliminate it. So in our way of thinking, my way of thinking, it cannot be the, 
the sole mitigation strategy because there are people out there like, oh, well, we have vaccines. Well, it cannot be the sole mitigation strategy because A, you can get breakthrough disease. So vaccines are not the perfect shield. You can still get infected even if you're vaccinated and you can still get long COVID even if you're vaccinated. As a matter of fact, now because the vaccine have been available here for more than a year, a lot of long COVID people that we see are actually being vaccinated and had long COVID after vaccination. So this idea that you cannot get long COVID after vaccination is is definitely not correct. Now, it doesn't mean vaccines are not working. It it just means that they're an imperfect shield, that that they're not really the perfect shield that people want to think they are, right? I mean, they're they're very good. They're very important. I'm a very strong proponent of vaccines. So people have not been vaccinated. Definitely, definitely get vaccinated because it's going to protect you from a lot of problems, including hospitalization, death, et cetera, et cetera. But it's not going to be a perfect shield to protect you from long COVID should you get infected. Yeah, we need to look at mitigation before that. I love the way your mind works because a lot of the questions that we have, you've gone off and done studies about them. <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, Thank you. Place, well, well, Ziad's done a study on it. Let's go yeah. read it. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you. We've been interested, I'm particularly interested in the idea of SARS-CoV-2 affecting our actual immune system and our innate immune system, T-cells, NK-cells, and then CD4, CD8, et cetera, which makes some people conclude that the virus acts in a similar way to HIV. And my own T-cell subset showed that I was quite deficient in uh, CD8 cells and NK-cells particularly. Do you have any plans to look at this side of the virus at all in your in future research this is an interesting idea and and i and i think it might explain a, a lot but our current agenda is really we're very very interested in trying to understand at this point therapeutics for long covid i think we've done from our group here quite a sort of a, a detailed characterization of what long covid could be you know affecting different organ systems in the brain and the heart and reinfection and effect with vaccination and i think we really need to invest and I, and I think that's what also like in, in discussing or talking with the community of patients this is really what they want like people are hurting some of them are actually really bed bound and profoundly disabled and, and and getting to a treatment as fast as possible is really going to be the the most important driver of our research agenda going forward and that doesn't mean that this this hypothesis is not very very important and actually can can may help improve or help inform treatment approaches <laughs> we're not people think we're this huge group here this colossal thing you know we are we are you know, I mean, I have a team and a strong team and they're amazing and wonderful. It's just a, a it, it's a, so in our research agenda, primary is going to be focused on, on treatment strategies. The treatment strategies, if you consider this illness to be a, an umbrella group with different components, like you said, long COVID A, B, C, I'm assuming that there's no silver bullet then, right? In your view? I, mean, I think it's too complex and too broad to sort of all be treated with one thing, right? Now, it, now it's possible that all roads lead to Rome. If you really think about, you know, SARS-CoV-2 and, and long COVID. So there is no long COVID without COVID. There is no long COVID without COVID. So it stands to reason that if you really early on nip it in the bud and abrogate COVID or reduce that to the minimum possible, potentially by even stronger antivirals and Paxlovid or other things very, very early on, stands to reason that you may be able to prevent the downstream consequences. And I think that's really potentially the main way by which you can sort of uh, reduce the risk of all these other things, the long COVID A and B and C and D. But if you're at the stage where you already have long COVID A or B or C or D, it's unlikely there's going to be like one drug that's going to target them all. 
They're going to have to be specific. So drug or therapeutic interventions, which have to be specifically tailored to the mechanisms that drive long COVID A, long COVID B, long COVID C. So it's going to have to be tailored intervention versus prevention strategies early on. You know, I think, you know, targeting the virus is, is probably going to yield the most return on investment. There's no long COVID without COVID. All mechanisms, regardless of what they are, all mechanisms actually lead to the virus, the virus as the initiating factor. There's no pandemic with actually without SARS-CoV-2. So hitting the virus and hitting it hard as early as possible is likely to yield the most successful prevention strategy. Look, three years in, what have you learned? Go. <laughs> that three years is not a very long time in terms of a novel disease and trying to establish what and why and how to treat. You need time. You need the time to see how it progresses and develops. That's my primary takeaway. <laughs> my primary takeaway from all of this is that we are not going to be cured by one single thing. And I think I've come to regard this illness as something that we have to manage rather than cure. Yeah. And, and I think the frustrating moments come when the management is not in, in our control, when we get to a stage where we feel like, okay, I'm not cured, but I feel like I'm managing, I'm doing okay with life. I can actually live a life. It's not the same life as I had before, but I can live a life. And then you have a big crash and your management strategies get kind of messed up. One of the reasons I was so excited to speak to Siad was because of this big VA study. It was a massive study that he did about reinfections and how the outcomes of every subsequent infection create this litany of dangers for us in terms of people who don't have long COVID the first time around have a higher chance second and third fourth time around and those of us with long COVID definitely in my opinion suffer every time we get an infection yeah so it was really good to look at the data and to see it quantified and statistically borne out. And each of these studies that, that he does, the data is incredibly conclusive. It's not vague. This is hundreds of thousands of people. And he is emphatic about how specific this data is. Every reinfection makes the outcome worse. And he did not feel that it was specific to any type of person or genetic predisposition necessarily. He's just seeing that people are getting worse with every reinfection. And the massive takeaway is when he says there at the end, there is no long COVID without COVID. So he's essentially fighting for us to put in place mitigation and stop people catching COVID, which is something that everyone seems to have forgotten. Both of us have got kids in school. Yeah. So it's Russian roulette, honestly. <laughs> Whether we mask or we don't mask, our kids' exposure means that we are vulnerable to infection and, and it's running through the schools like wildfire. So can I just say to all our listeners, no, we are not medical professionals or GPs, as some people think we are. It's rather flattering. It's flattering, but we do think we've been fairly explicit about that throughout the time that we've been doing this. 
We are journalists with Long COVID. And we'll continue to try and bring you the brightest minds, the most interesting research and the latest studies. And we'll also look at the things that are trending amongst the community. To try and have some scientific insight into some of that, because the other thing I think that people don't necessarily always remember is that what people write on social media is not necessarily true. So we do try and bring our journalistic standards into everything that we do here in terms of trying to bring facts. Not in the bit where we're chatting about our <laughs> our kind of philosophies on life. That's not necessarily factual. <laughs> but the guests that we bring, we're trying to get some clarification on what is effective and is not and the research that's coming out. Join us next week as we hear others' experiences of long COVID. Share your stories and questions at tlcsessions.net. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram for the latest updates. And if you found this interesting, please do subscribe.